Joe Gagne here, welcoming you to edition number 80 of Joe vs. the World. My returning guest today is the co-host of the Wrestling Culture Podcast, the co-host of the Trademarks Podcast, a contributor to Place to Be Nation reaction shows, and a frequent guest on Exile on Bad Street. So we're clearly giving this man some much-needed exposure. Dylan Hales, Dylan, <laughs> how you doing? You also, I'm doing great, but you also mentioned a semi-regular, uh, forgot a semi-regular contributor to VoicesOfWrestling.com. I I got to slip that in there. Uh, I'm I'm not a regular like you, Joe, but uh, I do contribute time to time. (laughs) I think uh, Joe and Rich are recording a show. We should try to do a run-in. Oh, man. That would be be absolutely great if we just came in and buried them live on on the air. (laughs) You could talk about that big uh, Southern tournament coming up. Oh, oh, let me tell you. Yeah, the the Scenic City Invitational, which has been uh, the highlight of my Twitter game for the last – Several weeks now, but I am very, very excited about that. I'll I'll plug a little bit more about that uh, at the end of the show here. All right, you you talked me into liking that page, so um, <laughs> success. That's, that's box office draw. Can uh, you can make hey, a run? In hey, hey, I I, sh- I shaved today. I I held up my end of the bargain. Oh, there you go. I held up my end of the bargain. I, I said if we got to 500 likes on that page, I would shave. And for people who don't know, I had a gigantic 18 uh, month old wizard beard. And it is now gone. So, upholding stipulations very important, as we will uh, <laughs> discover today. It's a little something different today. It's going to be pretty niche. Uh, we're going to examine Eddie Gilbert's run in Memphis through the latter half of 1990. This was the run where he he ran over Jerry Lawler with a car, <laughs> which I'm sure everyone's heard about, probably seen on YouTube. The, uh, the whole run was something I followed from afar in the after magazines. They dedicated a lot of space to it. It really captivated me as a youngin, because it just seemed so crazy at the time. I mean, this was a time, the Black Scorpion angle and the gobbledygooker, and it seemed so much more serious and kind of adult. And I mean, Lord knows we're going to see some goofy stuff during this run, but that's, I mean, that was just my approach. Were you a follower of um, USWA at this time? Did you see it? Were you kind of following along like I was? Oh, yeah, after mags were huge for me. Uh, when, I was, when I was a kid, you know, and I've said this before, it's, I always – always stress this when it comes to Hall of Fame season that to me the the non-representation of the magazines is the biggest oversight in the Observer Hall of Fame because for even as late as the 90s which is what we're talking about the magazines were a huge part of being a wrestling fan because you didn't have you didn't have access to all these promotions in real time you couldn't go download them right away on a on a torrent site or go to a streaming service that they held or whatever or go to YouTube even cuz none of that stuff existed so the only way you could keep up with stuff was through the aftermax, and USWA was like my favorite thing to follow in the aftermax, other than maybe uh, Joel Goodhart's promotion, <laughs> mm. but because it was so weird, you know. And you'd see these stories, and I, I distinctly remember the still picture that they had of the Lawler bump on the windshield in one of those magazines from being a oh, kid. Yes. Yeah, that was huge to me. I remember one of the headlines was Babes, Bats, and Blood. And it's like, yep, that gets my attention as a, uh, I think I was like 12 at the time. But yeah, that'll, that'll get my attention. Um, some kinds will uh, compile all this on YouTube. And uh, we went back and watched all the footage. You can follow along. Just search for Hail King Edward on YouTube. It's a 25-part series. It's, it's like five and a half hours. It flies by, trust me. It's mostly a lot of promos and uh, angles and, um, and the clips of matches. So if you want to do that, come back. Uh, before we dive in, what were your thoughts of Eddie Gilbert at this at this time? Because he had, he had wrapped up in the NWA back in April of that year. Last few months, he wasn't doing much of note. He's teaming with Ranger Ross, pretty much. <laughs> 
to me, he was he just seemed like a nomad because he would read in the magazines. Like you know, he used to be in the WWF. He teamed with Sting in something called the UWF. He won the U.S. Tag Titles with Rick Steiner. And you had mentioned Tri-State Wrestling. He had a very famous series of matches with Cactus Jack that <laughs> pretty much created ECW. But I, I mean, that reputation would follow him the rest of the his career. But I mean. What were your thoughts on him at this time? Well, it's funny because as we explore this stuff we're going to talk about today, a big big piece of this is, is like Gil, uh, Gilbert wanting to be Jerry Lawler, both in kayfabe sense and in the way the angle was laid out since. But I always thought, you know, well, I shouldn't say always, but looking back now with the benefit of hindsight and watching at the time, he strikes you almost more as like a, and I don't mean this to be mean because I love Eddie Gilbert. He's one of my favorites as a kid. But he strikes you as like a lower-rent Terry Funk. He'd be around the place for a while, you know, and, and then he'd be gone because he, you know, either pissed off a promoter or he just went somewhere else. And um, he totally had that outlaw vibe to him. And I think it's because I, I, I really believe in Eddie's case it was almost by design. You know, like that's almost what how he wanted to be portrayed. So um, I was a big fan of Eddie as a kid. You know, uh, the 89 stuff with Muda, at the, like, uh, which I was at, was able to see those guys work some live as a kid. I mean, that was one of my favorite things in wrestling um, in, a, in a year that was – Pretty much great from top to bottom if you were an NWA slash WCW fan at the time. But, you know, in 90, he, that was really the beginning of me realizing that Eddie was the outlaw that he sort of would continue to be throughout the, really up until he passed away. I mean, you know, all the way until his, his dying days, he would sort of be that nomad who would bounce from place to place and would get, like, you'd see him and you'd think, man, this guy's really good. And then he'd be gone <laughs> before you knew yeah. what happened. Right, to talk about Memphis of the USWA, uh, they in Portland were basically the last territory standing. I know Portland was done in 1991. I think I don't know if World Class existed in some capacity. I know they had to deal with USWA. I don't know if I factored that in. But as you said on Twitter, how many promotions today would kill to do the business 1990 USWA was doing? And it's, I mean, do they have more viewers than TNA on Destination America? I mean, I don't know what viewership numbers were. It seems certainly plausible. It's certainly within the realm of possibility. I mean, USWA TV in 1990, um, you know, depending on what time of the year you're talking in 1990, they had multiple TV shows, too, because this was when Jarrett had that weird arrangement with Texas, and he sort of owned a, a branch of the USWA that was operating in two different parts of the United States, and they were bussing people down to the shows at the Sportatorium for part of the year. So, I mean, it, it, it would be a misnomer, I think, to call the USWA a national promotion in 1990, but it was more of a national promotion than TNA is now. <laughs> and, and, I mean, I, I would say, you know, uh, not that this show is about this, but we, I, I would note that Puerto Rico was around, too, and Puerto Rico was also doing really good business in 1990, particularly by the standards of pretty much anybody other than the WWE today. So, I mean, yeah, USWA, it's not like, I mean, they were on their ass by their by the standards of their historical peak, but if you go back and look at it now and watch the TV and, and know what those ratings were getting, and even just look at the, the shows of the Mid-South Coliseum, which were certainly not full, or in some of the other clips we saw from smaller venues, I mean, they were doing healthy business by the standards of modern wrestling. <laughs> Like <laughs> very good business by the standards of modern wrestling. As in people were paying for tickets to their show. <laughs> if that's considered healthy, well, then yes. Well, it is when you consider that uh, two of the three possible number two promotions in the United States don't have people pay for tickets. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, the structure at the time is they had a live show every Saturday, and they would build to a big show at the Mid-South Coliseum every Monday night. So basically every Saturday show was a go-home show, which, if that seems odd, it's not all that dissimilar from the accelerated pace we see when the WWE adds additional shows onto the network. Like that, When they tossed in the Elimination Chamber and you had two weeks, it really wasn't all that different. No, it's very similar, actually. The only, I mean, the biggest difference is really just that, you know, the USWA was running the same towns for the most part over and over. I mean, the spot shows might be different on any given week. But the basically, Mid-South Coliseum was every Monday, and then the, the, the rest of the loop was pretty consistent as well, Evansville, whatever, wherever they were going at the time. Uh, so, but the, effectively, it, it is very, very similar to what you see today in terms of the turnaround time being really short. Which, it's interesting because we hear nowadays about how impossible it is to do certain things, but they were able to do a lot in very creative and interesting ways during this stretch, um, despite that alleged limitation. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, in terms of like, you know, every week you got to have a big show and the way they would really use stipulations and and stretch out feuds and, you know, transition feuds. It's really interesting to me the way they, you know, you bring in people and rain, like Bam Bam Bigelow shows up near the end. That surprised the hell out of me, but well, hey, why not? Oh yeah. Yeah. The, uh, and not to mention the USWA top 10, which I'm sure oh, we, yes. we may cover. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get all the kinds of stuff. I mean, I really would encourage people to, uh, to, to watch this stuff. Uh, like Joe said, uh, go, go search Hail King Edward on YouTube because it is, Incredibly easy to watch and incredibly entertaining to watch, and you're going to see everything from Tessa to Cowabunga and in between <laughs> during this 25. Uh, uh, it's 25 uh, YouTube's long, but it's well, well worth it. Yes, it'll it'll fly by. Um, all that said, speaking of Tessa, we'll start the story. Bill Dundee had been having problems with John Tatum since he took his valet, the lovely Tessa, and uh, Tatum put a bounty out on him. I believe there was a story that. Uh, I think Tatum kicked Tessa in the head during a Dallas show. They got them kicked off a couple stations. Yep. It's neither uh, here nor there, but, um, you know, the dirty white boy, Tony Anthony, tried to collect the bounty. And uh, Dundee needed a tag partner. So on TV, he brings out the returning Eddie Gilbert, says he's going to pay him $5,000 to be his partner. And Dundee gets jumped by Anthony and Tom Burton, the other dirty white boy. Eddie just stands there. Dave Brown asked him what was up, and Eddie replies, he's only Dundee's partner for the match, but he'll be in Dundee's corner for the upcoming TV match for free. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, during the match, Dundee gets attacked again. Not only does Gilbert not help, when Tessa protests, he grabs her by the hair. This leads to Jerry Lawler coming out and making the save, eventually turning face, because he had kind of been feuding with the snowman as a heel, I think, most of the year. And he later agrees to be Dundee's partner in the match against Tatum and, uh, and Anthony. And that match ends in a schmoz, a I think it was a DQ. Lolly used a pile driver. There wasn't a clear winner. Just a big fight at the end with Tessa and uh, Anthony's valet, the dirty white girl. So, Eddie still wants to get paid, which is was hysterical because he didn't help in any way whatsoever. <laughs> but, so that's the big angle to bring him back. Do you think Dundee looked kind of dumb trust, this way? Because normally when, you know, you hire a... I don't know if Eddie was a heel when he left or what, but normally this is... I didn't feel it was that bad because, you know, we hadn't seen Eddie in a while. You weren't sure. And he didn't turn on Dundee during the match. He just wasn't very helpful when uh, Dundee may have needed him. Well, I don't think he necessarily looked dumb because the issue of money was at stake. You know what I mean? Like, the, like the, there was money involved. I mean, you, you, we, can, we can count. There's a lot of examples I can think of where, like, uh, 
guys were brought in for money. Like the one I always think of because it's the most hilarious one is Carlos Colon paying Abdul the Butcher to come in. Like Carlos Colon needed Abdul the Butcher, so he paid him money. Like those two teamed up and money was able to resolve their issues. So mm-hmm. like, you know, I think for that reason, it wasn't so bad. I do want to note, we covered this on the, I believe on the UWF, uh, uh, the, the collapse of the UWF edition of the Exile on Bad Street podcast, myself and uh, Chris Zellner and David Bixen's fan. Um, Eddie, knowing that Eddie tried to lead a, uh, a union walkout of Central State, makes his, makes his character here of guy who refuses to work or do any work that he's not actually exactly compensated for. It makes it super believable and adds a ton of depth to that. As I was watching that, I was laughing my ass off. So, yeah. Uh, I thought about that. I was, uh, I thought that was, and Eddie is just absolutely hilarious doing that, too. Like, uh, it, it's really funny to watch it because he's like, well, yeah, you know, I'll, 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 I'll second you, Bill. I'll stand in your corner. Like, oh, great. <laughs> He was really good at being very funny. There's some very funny things coming up, and just being kind of funny and off the cuff without kind of losing credibility, not, you know, falling to be a comedy heel. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He, like, that's, that's hard. He, you know, it was very hard. You know, like, I, in some ways, I would compare him um, to Arn Anderson in that regard. I mean, Arn was a more, much more serious promo. In fact, I think Arn Anderson's the greatest promo of all time because you look at him and he looks like a, a math teacher, and then he talks and you're <laughs> deathly afraid of him. But mm. but it's similar in the sense that both guys could do that sort of almost goofy stooging, but not so goofy that you didn't believe they wouldn't put up a real fight if you were in there with them. And that's that is a very hard line, uh, you know, to, to straddle because it's so easy to tip over one way or the other. But Eddie was Eddie was great at anything involving getting over an angle. I, I don't know that I could think of ten guys in the history of wrestling better than him at that. So we have Lawler and Dundee on TV. They make a challenge for a tag match where the women are handcuffed to the ring post. The winning team gets to unlock their women. She gets to do whatever to the loser. Anthony cuts a promo where he says uh, Burton's hurt. John Tatum has a bad neck. He, he doesn't have a partner. So Eddie comes out, volunteers, cuts a great promo about how he's had to be Mr. Nice Guy the past two years. Kind of that, you know, it has kind of elements of shootiness, but I mean, we'll see that later on with Jeff Jarrett. But nothing that, you know, kind of undermines, nothing that screams like, oh, this is fake. Just this idea that, you know, I haven't been comfortable the last two years, now I'm free to be myself. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've been I've been elsewhere where, you know, and, and it's kind of, they sort of mention this at times over the span of this, like, that he had been elsewhere and that he, while maybe wasn't as successful as he wanted to be, but not really, they don't really portray him as a failure. They just hmm. sort of portray him as, like, Eddie wasn't Eddie when he was away. <laughs> you know, like when he wasn't yeah. here, he wasn't his real self, and now he's his real self again. When he comes to Memphis, he's transformed into pure evil. But when he's working for Turner or whoever, he's he's capable of being a decent human being. I don't know how that works, but uh, it, it the promo was great. Uh, we got a bunch of tags. It led to a Texas Deathmatch tag team. It came down to Anthony and Dundee both being down. So whoever got to their feet first would be the winner, which was incidentally the finish of the famous Texas Deathmatch that Buddy Landell was in, which I didn't know the first time I went back and watched this footage. It wasn't until uh, Landell's passing I went back and watched that, the, you know, the whatever, however many falls that was, Texas Deathmatch. They repeated the finish, which is really a, what an awesome finish to, like, I would love to see something like this in the WWE. This is something you completely import. I think it completely gets the crowd, you know, into it. And, uh, 
Yeah, and uh, Dundee and Lawler win that. Yeah, like that that great deal. You know, you don't get to see photo most most of the time when you see a photo finish in wrestling, it sucks because it's like guys scrambling to to get a near you know, a pin before the thirty minute time limit is up, and either it barely happens or time runs out right before the hand hits the mat or something. You know, it's just kind of played out, but the which guy can get back to their feet at the end thing, I think, I mean, I, I still say that WWE last man standing matches tend to be one of their most bullet, in an era where so many of their uh, stipulation matches are, are tired and boring and played out. The last man standing matches lots of times work for me better than other things because of the fact that it's easier to build the drama there in a compelling way. So, uh, but this was, this was next level stuff, but I mean, yeah, everybody involved, I think, is a really great performer. Mm-hmm. I was, I think, Tony Anthony jumped the highest in stock for me because I, I liked him. I knew he was good. I thought he was just ex- exquisite here. It's kind of this kind of slime ball heel. Oh, so he's heels. so good. He is so good. I mean, like uh, you know, a few years back, I, I watched uh, all the Smoky Mountain that's out there, and he completely jumped off the page. And I watched most of that as it happened too, but it, he just jumped off the page as like a, a, a shockingly good performer, you know, in the rear view. And uh, not that long ago, I went back and watched some of his stuff from continental and he was great there too. I mean, he's, he's really one of the unheralded great Southern wrestlers. I don't think he gets nearly the credit he deserves. No, it's kind of sad. Like <laughs> Teal Hopper was his largest, <laughs> his largest exposure. I mean, I'm, Surprised he never got a shot in a WCW or anything like that. Did I miss any any of that? Or? I don't think he ever worked there. Not that Jeez. I can, not that I can recall. And it, it's odd because he was a great promo too. Like if he like if he was just like a like had like a a nice scummy look and was like a like a good hand to be one thing. But he was a really good promo. I mean, Memphis is known for promos in a lot of ways, and he was every bit as good as Lawler and Gilbert and anybody else we're going to talk about. All right, so up next, Eddie calls out photographer Sam Lowe. <laughs> they're upset they're on the same roll of film as Lawler and Dundee, so they steal his camera and throw hot coffee in his face. But then we jump to the very end of, the, of a bunkhouse death match, and Sam Lowe hits Lawler with the camera, knocking him out, allowing Gilbert and Anthony to get a win. Gilbert gives an interview saying Lowe is a close personal friend, wasn't hot coffee, and they were going to rematch in the form of a stretcher match. So this introduces Sam Lowe, and he'll have a name change coming up in a bit that I want to expound on. That was pretty amazing. But, yeah, the kind of a little bit of a swervy angle to introduce. Um, I don't think Sam Lowe did much before or after this run that I can recall. Not that I remember. I do believe he was a legit Eddie Gilbert friend. Like, that, that was, like, his kind of his claim to fame, if I'm not mistaken, his friend of Eddie Gilbert. But uh, this was really, really well done, too, because I believe this was after they did the thing with a young Mark Curtis, where, which we didn't mention, where yes. they bring Mark Curtis out of the, like, uh, basically out of the TV studio audience crowd. And Eddie's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you want my autograph? And this was like, oh, you want to talk to me? And this was after uh, he had not gotten the money that he believed he mm-hmm. was owed by Bill Dundee. And... You know, uh, this young Mark Curtis, who's every bit as small and mulleted as you remember Mark Curtis being, is <laughs> right. like, oh, yeah, 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 I, 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 you're awesome, you know, kind of playing along. And then Eddie just waylays him, just devastates him, knocks him on his ass. So when they came back to do this, something similar with, with 
Sam, you know, Sam Lowe, you, you believed it even more because we'd already seen mm-hmm. Eddie snap. And plus, even though it's not necessary, I don't know that this was necessarily by design, but it is Eddie Gilbert, so we can't rule it out. The coffee to the face, possibly an homage to Lawler and Kaufman? Maybe. Oh, that's true, because he would certainly bring that up uh, later on. All right, so we have a match on TV between Eddie and Bill Dundee to determine the number two contender, which is important thing to determine. <laughs> Very big on rankings. Oh, yes, that's huge. <laughs> and uh, they had a fun match for a few minutes till Tony Anthony ran in for the DQ. And I don't know, the endless DQs on TV, I understand why they do them. It, I don't know, maybe it's because I watched a bunch in a row. Maybe it's not as bad if you watch week to week. But, I mean, did that ever, like, get to you, like, the endless... Like, if you saw, like, a competitive match on TV, it was... Likely going to end in a DQ, and even squash matches. But. Well, the, the worst part about it is that it's a ma- it's matches between guys you want to see have a match. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, it's not like it's matches between, like, where one guy kind of stinks and the other guy's good, or even, like, a couple of okay guys. It'd be, like, guys who are legitimately really good wrestlers, and then they go three minutes and there'd be a DQ. And I, I can't really defend it other than to say that there are times where I think it's in the service of a greater good, and uh, I would say as a whole, I think that, that this type of thing was in the service of a greater good, though they probably could have done some more creative things from time to time. Hmm. So uh, Lawler ran in with some bats until Bundy the gorilla did a run-in. Bundy was a guy in a gorilla suit, kind of hung around, gave out souvenirs. He did a run-in. It turned out to be John Tatum. And Dave Brown had the classic call. Last week it was the photographer. This week it's the gorilla. He also made sure to let us know this wasn't the real Bundy. And to hammer that point home, the heels took a camera backstage to reveal Bundy tied up. So, thank goodness. And, and, and I, I do. And Tatum had been out selling the neck injury from a, a pile driver, I believe. But it, so he was off TV for a while. So it was a little bit of a surprise, even though he'd been around at the beginning portion of all this. But I also think it. You know, I'll just mention it now because I don't want to forget it. This was a period where Lance Russell wasn't around in, in, in Memphis. Mm-hmm. And Dave Brown was sort of, who I, I always think is underrated anyway, but he was sort of cast in the Lance Russell role as the straight man who had to put up with, frankly, all that Eddie's bullshit. <laughs> and he is really good at that, too. So you got to give Dave Brown some credit. I don't want to forget to do it, so we may as well do that now. He's a really entertaining straight man. He's not Lance Russell. Nobody's that good. But he's very good as a sort of substitute Lance Russell in that role, and, and, you know, he, some of his facial expressions during some of uh, Eddie's antics <laughs> That's true. are priceless. Which we will uh, get to in a bit. Tatum and uh, Burton went away after this. I know, I'm just looking up about Burton. I guess, um, I guess he beat Sakuraba in, like, Sumo Hall, if I remember correctly, <laughs> in a shoot fight. I'll have to double-check that. But he, I know he, was, he uh, went to Puerto Rico and a lot and whatnot. Kind of a journeyman, I get the feeling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's one of these guys like uh, like a Bull Kane or somebody like that. Um, yeah, Andrew, who was who was a, a good hand, a good wrestler, re- maybe, probably really underrated. But they came around at a time where the territories were all dying, and guys like that were probably already always going to be a bit limited when it came to like big time wrestling. So they sort of just scratched by doing what they could in the places that were left to work. And unfortunately, a lot of those guys are kind of forgotten, even though in some cases they were really good. Yeah, looks like he had a run in the UWFI, so not what I would have pictured. Uh, anyway. Along with Little Guido. True. UWFI true. legend, Little Guido. Yes. 
Guido, I can see. Bird and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah, I, would, I, I wouldn't have guessed that either, to be fair. All right, so Eddie brought in his brother Doug, who was using the hit the Hitman nickname at this point, so points for originality. Um, I think I think Doug kind of he wasn't as good a talker as his brother, but I think that kind of added to the act. Like you know, it's the the top heel bringing in his little brother as kind of like a toady. I think that it worked in that way. I love Doug during this stuff precisely because he's not as good as Eddie. And and that sound that sounds like it's a cheap shot, but it's really not because I, I think Doug Gilbert is really underrated. Um he's kind of another one of these guys, like a Tom Burton or like a Bull Payne or whoever who uh, you know, came around a little bit too late. But he his he is it, I don't even think he's, he's not even really Eddie's understudy. You know what I mean? Like, like you would think, oh, he's the little brother, so he's going to kind of be like a low ran Eddie. That's not how they portray him at all. He's like his own entity who's clearly not at Eddie's level and not at the level of a lot of the guys he's in the ring with, but he, he's completely clueless as to that fact. <laughs> and he's so, he's so, um, he's so not self aware. <laughs> That it actually adds to the overall angle. Uh, he's really great in this. Yep, and uh, we built to a big six-man tag match in a cage. The loser gets their head shaved. It was Eddie Doug and Tony Anthony against Lawler Dundee and the returning Austin Idol. Now, Idol was the one who shaved Jerry Lawler's head in that very famous angle, and Eddie was planting the seeds. Idol was going to turn. Uh, we see the clips of the match, and of all the clip matches that were, I kind of wish I could see this one the most in full, because... Um, the story was Idol kept accidentally hitting Lawler, but in the end, Anthony hit Doug by mistake with a loaded boot. Lawler got the pin, Doug got his head shaved. They had, and they had this really big, it, I mean, it just looked like a completely chaotic match. They have this huge, almost like a Hell in a Cell type cage that without a roof. And really, wish, I mean, I kept thinking like, man, I wish I was there for this. This one I wish I was there the most for, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this had a War Games feel. Plus, just Idol even being there in 1990. I mean, he he pops up some throughout this, but mm-hmm. in a way, you think like, or at least I think of Idol, like you know, as a guy who was an 80s wrestler and he was gone by the 90s. But that's not really true. You know, he was still lingering around, and he is he adds an extra element to this because of the fact of, of the history, which is well known and which they do a great job talking about on TV, and also because of the fact that he is somebody who is a legitimate Memphis wrestling legend. You know what I mean? Like, he's somebody that you can bring in and has that sort of legendary status as opposed to being a guy who maybe is a a good worker or, or or, or like, a good fit aesthetically, but doesn't really have that Memphis, uh, that that big-time Memphis feel. I I would have loved – I mean, there's several matches. You know what? This might be my pick, too. This would be up there. This was one of the – um, more interesting matches that we got a glimpse mm. at. And because when we say these are clipped, they are really clipped in most yeah. cases. I mean, there's very little of them that you see. I wonder, I mean, I, do they, I mean, some, they had to deal with ESPN, so some things aired live. I know especially the title tournament we'll get into later. I don't know whether anything else popped up or what, or, I mean, they probably, I, I don't, the tapes probably don't exist, and if they did, who knows who they belong to, so i I don't think this stuff will miraculously pop up, which is a, a real shame. Yeah, it's kind. It's kind of like um, you know, Stampede from the '80s, where like you, you'll see like a third of a match and it's really good, and you're like, man, I bet Ben Basserab was really fucking good. Too bad I'll never see a full Ben Basserab yeah. match. <laughs> yeah. So uh, 
Doug ended up showing up on the Saturday TV wearing a mask. And he cut the promo saying, Great Granny Gilbert once gave him a magic hair elixir. I guess for a situation like this, Doug takes off his mask. He has his hideous toupee on, with the story being that this magic elixir gave him a full head of hair. So Eddie goes on to wrestle Cowabunga, the Ninja Turtle, who... Was this Hildebrand at the time, or was it Chris Champion? It's got to be Champion. Sure. I don't think Hildebrand... I think Hildebrand only wore... He might have worked some in the USWA in the, under the gimmick, but I think he mostly worked Smoky Mountain under that gimmick. All right, so this was, like I said, a man in a Ninja Turtle outfit, and uh, <laughs> Eddie couldn't even beat Cowabunga. Eddie's crew runs in for the DQ. To me, there's nothing funnier than when a full-size Ninja Turtle gets beat up by... <laughs> I men, I don't, I don't know. But Lawler and Dundee run in for the save, and Doug's toupee gets ripped off for the payoff to that. And then uh, Dundee and Kawabunga cut a promo about a five thousand dollar challenge match with Kawabunga adding he's going to buy a lot of. <laughs> you you also forgot Joe that Kawabunga puts on Doug's toupee he at one point, which, hair. which is right. absolutely awesome. Though not my all time favorite Kawabunga moment. Everybody also go to emotion and. Cowabunga versus Jim Cornette, which is a Smoky Mountain match that uh, we discovered when we were going through the Smoky Mountain handhelds. If you want to see the all-time great Cowabunga performance, that includes, among other things, uh, Cowabunga on his back, unable to get up because he's a turtle on a shell, so he can't stand. He's spinning uncontrollably. And Cowabunga dropping his shell for the fiery comeback instead of dropping the strap. <laughs> you know, you could do it. <laughs> Wrestling culture on Ninja Turtle gimmicks throughout the years. Uh, they've been and up to today. This is this is not a joke, uh, but uh, I'm almost positive that Dave Musgrave, my co-host for that show, for those who don't know, has actually suggested that very topic. <laughs> so, how, how do you not do that? That's right there. <laughs> there are quite a few. Yeah, there I mean, are multiple today. <laughs> yes, there are multiple. I think they're feuding. Oh, that's great. <laughs> See them in Japan. It's oh, I don't know. It's, it's most lasting gimmick there's, there's ever been. So, uh, this is apropos of nothing but lame gimmicks. But in scanning results, I saw there was someone named MC Jammer on the roster at the time, and I was so curious, I looked him up. And basically, it was a large black man in a mask who looked like the lost member of Doom. Harvey Whippleman was his manager, and he, he really stunk. I don't know why he was called that. I guess they just thought, you know, hey, this is a popular thing. We'll. We'll go with it. So that that absolutely had to be it because that's quite the Memphis thing to do. Whether it is whether yeah. it be Freddie uh, as a as an undercard baby face, Tommy Gilbert dressed up as Freddy Krueger as an undercard baby face, or Calabunga the Ninja Turtle, or you know, uh, or uh, M- MC Jammer. That was <laughs> or the the new kids were they? I presume they were like some kind of takeoff on the new kids on the block. I. Can't verify that for certain. I don't think New Kids is a terribly good name for a team unless it's tied into that. God, how awesome would it be if it actually was New Kids on the Block as a as a uh, Memphis stable? Uh, I wish. Want to hang in tough? I can see it. That would be totally awesome. I, I imagine Donnie would have been a good worker. <laughs> you break you break him in early, man. He would have been uh, he would have been really exciting. I think. Uh, the new kids were uh, Brian Christopher, who is, of course, Jerry Lawler's son, and Tony Williams, who kind of enhancement guy for years and years to come, which we'll, we'll see them very briefly at the end. But I just thought that was always a curious gimmick. I think they were the Twilight Zone before that. If I believe you're right. It's very odd, but there you go. 
So we get we hit the uh, big angle time. We see the end of a battle royal when it comes down to Brickhouse Brown and Eddie Gilbert. Eddie wants to split the money. Brickhouse refuses, dumps Eddie, only to get attacked by Eddie Doug and Sam Lowe. And the commissioner, Eddie Marlin, who's like a thousand years old, tries to stop this. He gets stomped and beaten on as well. So we cut to the Saturday morning show. Eddie comes out, and uh, Eddie Marlin comes out while Eddie and Doug are doing a promo, saying he should fire them both. Eddie doesn't care, which is kind of surprising. I mean, today, you know, in the WWE, people are destitute if they're not in. Eddie just says, hey, I'll go be a star somewhere else. And it just kind of escalates. Both Gilberts are fired. Eddie escorts him out of the building. Doug gets the car. Eddie has some words with Eddie Marlin. They shove a bit. Marlin gets knocked to the ground. Jerry Lawler comes out to make the save, and he retreats to his car. Instead, just driving off, he revs the engine, and he runs over Jerry Lawler. I don't mean he almost misses him. He doesn't, you know, he stops short, taps him. I mean, he runs him over with a car. Like. <laughs> yes. If you've not seen this, pause this podcast right now and at least find this particular clip. Because you can't really do it justice. But, like, okay, no, he wasn't going 90 miles an hour. But he was probably going 25 or 30. And, and he hits him. <laughs> I mean... You, it's it's funny because Lawler is I mean he knows it's gonna happen obviously but Lawler there's like a split second where Lawler sort of braces himself right before impact and you can I mean you can almost tell even though the camera angle is sort of from the side is diagonal to Lawler's back you can kind of almost tell that Lawler is thinking in that moment this is a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, because, I mean, Lawler tries to jump up so that, you know, I think I think the plan was that he was going to jump up and kind of roll off the hood. But what happens is the combination of the speed of the car and the height that Lawler jumps means that the impact is actually on the windshield, <laughs> like right yeah. right on his hip. Yeah, Glor gets hit, kind of bounces up, and kind of gets hit again by the like. I can't even describe how brutal it was. And then he just hits, splats on the concrete, and and yeah, I now I heard they wanted to keep Lawler out for a while, but people watching live on TV thought, oh my god, he got hit by a car, which you know he did. So Lawler had to come out at the end of the show say he was okay, or else the cops are going to arrest Eddie Gilbert. But when it happened, they like they didn't really treat it like, oh my god, like he got run over. Like Eddie Marlin helped Lawler to his feet, which I don't recommend if you see someone get hit by a car. <laughs> Dave Brown didn't even seem all that concerned. No, he, he just didn't. like, oh. Dave Brown was like, hey, he's like, well, oh, yeah, it's just another week, you know. Like, <laughs> it's Memphis. It's like you know, it's like uh, the. Uh, it's like it reminded me kind of of the reaction that that uh, Lance Russell has in the empty arena match to Terry Funk's ranting, you know, like. It's like he's annoyed and sort of contemptuous of Terry Funk being an asshole, but it's also like, well, this is just how things are done around here. So, <laughs> of course, here we are in an empty arena with this guy being a complete jackass. You know, like, I, like Memphis wrestling is it's simultaneously the most enthralling and serious stuff because they mix in a lot of real life stuff and a lot of stuff that's kind of shooty, but not in a russo way. Mm. But it's also the most over the top ridiculous stuff because they do shit like this and it, they do stuff like this. 
Like, I mean, they didn't run people over the car multiple times, but the, the reality is it didn't seem that crazy in the context of Memphis because it's Memphis. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's completely insane if you're a kid reading it in the aftermath. But I can actually imagine if you were following week to week, thinking, okay, this is over the line and it's absurd, but not even being all that surprised by it because the show was so crazy as it was. I mean, if the, I mean, WWE has done things like this in the past, but they've, you know, they clearly use stuntmen. They, you know, cut camera angles, you know, it's pre-taped, things like that. I mean, this was live on television outside. There was clearly no camera tricks, so. No, and Just, I, uh, I, you could argue, you could very well argue that this is the stupidest bump in wrestling history. I mean, hmm. there, there may be scaffold match bumps and stuff like that, and like some of the crazier garbage matches that maybe are, are, are worse, but I, I almost feel like this is actually worse because you don't really have, like, in those situations, in theory, you have some control over your body. But Lawler clearly has no control over his body at all. Like, none. I mean, he's trying to assert control, but it is not possible when a car is speeding at you and you're, (laughs) Mm. oh, it's insane. I think I'd rather get thrown off Hell in a Cell than get hit by a <laughs> I, I think I would, too, honestly. I, I really think I would. So Lawler, not surprisingly, cuts a great revenge promo. And then Eddie responds saying, Lawler's the real killer because he gave Andy Kaufman cancer. <laughs> they, you play the famous match because, you see, trauma can cause cancer to spread throughout the body. So... I don't know if this is some plausible medical science there. He then calls out Sam Lowe and announced he had his name changed to Sam Bass. Now, if you're wondering what this means, Sam Bass is Jerry Lawler's first manager in the 70s who nicknamed him the King and who died in a car crash in 1975. And I'm a, I always say that there's, there's good bad taste and there's bad bad taste. Like, good bad taste gets you angry, and bad bad taste makes you want to not watch anymore. This is, I think it's clearly very good bad taste because it's like, oh my god, what is like, what a dick, you know? Yes, and and, and the way it was done is done just it, it's just kind of casually done. Um, Eddie doesn't even like Eddie doesn't even make a big deal out of it. He's just like, well, you know, Sam went down and did this today, so his name is Sam Bass, and I think Dave Brown is the one who's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me, like. <laughs> You know, that's not Sam Bass. And then Eddie Marlin comes out and he's like, let me tell you something. I knew Sam Bass, but, you know, like, which is hilarious because Sam Bass was like a hated heel. But, yeah. but you know, <laughs> like, it, it is absolutely classic. And the, the Kaufman thing is hilarious because they were still doing that. Like, they were still doing the Jerry Lawler caused Andy Kaufman's cancer angle during the, during the last Memphis startup, which was like, Maybe six or seven years ago, when they had that brief TV show, Jerry Lawler Wrestling, whatever the hell it was called, they had like Lawler right. and Derek King and Dots. I think Jonathan Gresham, of all people, was there for a little while. Like, and, and they did the same thing there. They brought in this guy who was like a, a version of Heath Ledger's Joker, if I'm not mistaken. Under that, and then they 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 brought him in as like the Avenger of uh, as a friend of Andy Kaufman, Andy Kaufman's Avenger, because Andy Lawler had killed Kaufman by giving him cancer with a pile driver. So they were still doing that, wow. like just a handful of years ago. Oh, I, believe me, I believe you. So <laughs> this uh, 
of course, led to the revenge match of Jerry Lawler, Brickhouse Brown against the Gilberts. It was, I mean, basically an ECW match. It was blood, table in the ring, fire, crowd brawling. This looked. Not, I mean, this is probably the number two match I wish I was there for because I, I don't have business figures. I imagine this did pretty good. This might have been actually my number one pick, in part because of the absurdity of the Brick, Brickhouse Brown being a Lawler teammate. Like, like yeah. I, I just. This might be my number one pick for match I wish we had in full, especially because it is coming on the heels of, in the same year, the Lawler-Snowman feud, which you could also do an entire show on. Oh, yes. It's tremendous. One of the great angles, really, of the last, I'd say, 30 years in a lot of ways, and the way it laid out from week to week on TV. And that feud was a feud that was all about, like, the very real racial politics and dynamics that were that existed in the wrestling business and in the city of Memphis at the time. So... And now Lawler is uh, back in, you know, now he's teaming with a black man after uh, having been feuding with a black man partially and largely of a race just a few months prior. So mm. it's, but I mean, really any of these matches I would love to see, but this might be my number one pick for match that I wish we had uh, in full, or at least in a more complete form than what we have. Mm. Watching this one, it reminded me of my other complaint. Like, <laughs> can someone tell Jerry Lawler he looks ridiculous in these outfits? Like, he's wearing, like, neon green and blue. And he just, I mean, you know, just wear, like, all black or something. Like, I don't know. Maybe it was just part of being the king. I don't know. Well, I mean, that's another, that's a Lawler staple, too. Like, he'd show yeah. up the TV wearing these absurd, like, V-neck sweaters, and which I don't think were ever all that fashionable and not necessarily ever a good look for him. But uh, and so, I, I do want to mention some of the stuff, like Lawler is a really great wrestler. You know, I think he's one of the greatest wrestlers ever lived. And some of the stuff he does in some of these matches is really awesome. Like some of the little nuances. And I, we've already passed this point. I wish I could remember what match this was in. But there was one, it might have actually been this match. There was one match where we have a clip and he goes to drop the strap and he's already bleeding but he already has his strap down, <laughs> so he just sort of shrugs, and he's like, eh, fuck it, and he, and he lollers up anyway. <laughs> the strap is already down. And it's just such a, it's such a subtle thing that – and a lot of guys nowadays especially would panic if like, their go-to gimmick wasn't there. But Lawler was like – he was so good at conveying emotion with just little looks and things like that that, you know, the crowd knew what he was going for and, and sort of reacted exactly – and almost better than if he had dropped the strap. So um, I wanted to mention that because there's a few times where, like, little things like that happened in the matches that are – it, 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 I guess theoretically it's a flub, but it, to me it kind of adds to it. Uh, so Lawler cut a great promo where he – basically painted Gilbert as an obsessed fan. And the story was so basic, like Gilbert grew up idolizing Lawler, and now he basically wants to replace him, which... But it's almost understandable from Gilbert's side that your childhood hero is still there when you're in the business trying to make your way. And um, I don't know, it's just like one of those motivations is very easy to understand. And isn't, isn't this the promo, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, and you may not remember, but I think this is also the promo where he, he says, like, you know, your dad didn't live up to his potential, and now that you're, you're worried you're not going to live up to yours. You, I think like, so, yeah. So it's like, it, not only is he basically calling Eddie a poser, but he's also sort of taking a jab at him for being like an underachiever. You know, mm. and um, and not just him, but his family. And mm. it, it's almost almost a heelish thing for Lawler to say, but Eddie is such a dick 
<laughs> you just yeah. like you have it's impossible to feel sympathy toward him whatsoever. Um, because he's really great at not allowing you to feel sympathy for him. There, like there are people in the crowd who cheer for him, uh, especially on the TV where he's got like a little cheering section. But he's so good at being a dick that it, it, it you almost forget that he's got a handful of supporters. That is very true, and uh, I don't know if it was brought up at this point, but Gilbert's little stable is going by the Memphis Mafia name, which was, I believe, Elvis Presley's management team, something along those lines. That's what it was a reference to. So another reference to uh, to the King, but um, yes, yeah, which I thought was always a cool little uh, heel stable name. Oh yeah, I love that name. I, I love that name, especially because uh, we get some real Italian blood in that stable coming up. Oh yes, <laughs> we do. But uh, we jump to. I, it was mystery night at the Mid South Coliseum. They had a blindfold battle royal of sorts, where the winner had a chance to win a new car. It came down to Lawler and Eddie, and of course, Eddie not only lifts up his hood to look; he uses a foreign object, pins Lawler. So the deal is, there are cars behind two curtains. Eddie gets to pick, and of course, he picks the clunker. He flips out. Pretty standard stuff. But what was so great was that Jerry Lawler was doing an autograph signing at Airport Toyota. <laughs> And they brought the clunker there and said fans could spray paint messages to Eddie on the car. Like, I, can't, I can't imagine what that car looked like at the end. <laughs> Just says big fuck you on the hood or something. Like, <laughs> I, I don't even know. Like this is something that needs to be recycled. On I don't know if you could spray paint the the car, but well, it's it's great too because Eddie comes out and he's and he's he cuts a promo where he threatens to sue Lawler. Like That's right. and he turns it to him for theft of the car because he'd taken the car after Eddie had destroyed it because he'd like run over when he won it and like smashed it the windshield up with a chair himself because he was so mad because it was a piece of junk. So then Lawler takes it there and he's like, "We're going to leave all these messages." And Eddie cuts this promo where he's like, "You know, I'm, I'm going to sue you, Lawler. I'm going to sue you for grand theft. I've got you." And he's but it's like he's not even mad. It's like now I've got him. I've got him. Like the way he cut the promo is like I've got him dead to rights for Grand Theft Auto. It's all is right with the world because Jerry Lawler is going to go to prison. And then and then he's and then he says uh, he's like uh, I know all my fans are going to show up and they're going to write things like I love you Eddie all over the car. <laughs> so ridiculous. It's completely absurd. But uh, yeah, it's, it's totally awesome. On Raw this week. Um, of course, this will be completely irrelevant to people who are listening to this six months later. But they they, they did an angle like where, where uh, Seth Rollins gives a Cadillac to J and J Security, and my, like you so wanted something to happen to this car. My dad, who actually became a big time uh, uh, Tennessee wrestling fan when he moved to, to Tennessee after growing up in Albuquerque. He was like ranting to me about how uh, if, if Tojo Yamamoto was there and he had and he had uh, and he was um, uh, feuding with Seth Rollins, he would have taken a shit in the sunroof. He was very very <laughs> upset that there was no payoff to that Cadillac going to J and J Security. So. <laughs> uh, so. Danny Davis defeated a young wrestler named Joey Maggs. That name sounds familiar. He was a longtime jobber, most notably in WCW, where he kind of sort of not really got a push in 1996 when Teddy Long managed him. But here he was a spunky young kid. He impressed Danny Davis, who offered to take him under his wing. And um, Eddie came out and tried to kind of recruit uh, Danny Davis because they used to ride up and down the roads. Danny said, no, that was a long time ago. So Gilbert kind of did the next best thing. He got to... uh, Joey Maggs made him a little more heelish, 
and uh, recruited him, went by his actual name of Joseph Magliano, which I thought was like a mafia name they gave him, but I guess that's his actual name. So. <laughs> when I read that in the magazines, I'm like, oh, okay, they gave him an Italian name because he's in the mafia. But no, a real name, so there you go. Yes, uh, possibly a relative of Joe Lanza. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know for sure, but it, it's certainly possible. To be determined. So, um, <laughs> as you said, the uh, the snowman vacated the USWA Unified World Title, and uh, I don't think he had been around all that much. So Eddie was really like carrying the territory as the main the main um, angle. So, but the snowman would be about eight shows in and of itself. So we were going to have a huge tournament for the belt to determine the number one seed. They took Lawler, Dundee, Jarrett, and Eddie, and basically had a round robin tournament. So whoever won. I think it was three matches. I'm not sure if it was three matches or three matches in a row. But whatever, they would get the number one C. This was the basis of a, a Mid-South Coliseum show. Jared had two wins. He was about to beat Lawler when Gilbert attacked him, made him get counted out. So then Lawler had two wins, was wrestling Gilbert, and Jared interfered, cost Gilbert the match. So Lawler got the number one seed, and we started a shift to Gilbert and uh, Jared in kind of a second-generation style feud. So it was like six matches in total. It sounds strange, but it was like six matches in a row, a little funky, but uh, it kind of worked out in the end. And it's something you can do when you've built every one of those guys on TV really well. Like, That's right. if, if, it's the, if all those guys have gotten a lot of TV time and a, a solid amount of the focus, you can t- absolutely do that. Um, in fact, it, it's kind of a cool thing to do because it's unique. You know, it's, and, it is. and that's the thing about a lot of this stuff. A lot of this stuff was, you could argue that it's things that Memphis had done a variety of times over the years, but it was unique to the characters involved in the context of what they were doing at the given time, which is why, even though they weren't doing humongous business at the time, you know, they were doing enough business to at least stay afloat. Like now we just see like a beat the beat the clock. <laughs> just, that's the worst. But, that's uh, the worst gimmick ever, hands down. Yeah, it. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, we don't really see that much anymore. I'm not sad. <laughs> Me either. So they um, brought back the Southern title, which used to be the main title in Memphis until Lawler beat Kerry Von Erich, made it the Unified World title. So we have that in addition to the Southern title. They gave it to Dick Slater because, hey, why not? And uh, Jeff Jarrett beat Dick Slater for it on October 6th, just two days before the big tournament, which I call bullshit on, but, hey, what are you going to do? Yeah, So yeah, what are you going to do is pretty much right. Yeah, but I have to say, like, Jeff Jarrett around this time, I've said it, he was like, it's favorite incarnation I have of Jeff Jarrett, which isn't good because I have to watch him for two plus decades after this. <laughs> be not as good. No, he, he he's a guy who peaked early. He should he probably always should have been basically a blowjob babyface. Um, but there's something that about him like some second generation wrestlers come across as guys who had to work even harder because they were second-generation wrestlers to get a break. Like, to me, a good example, that would be Dustin Rhodes. Like, he had to work even harder because of who he was. Yes, he got some breaks when he was younger that other guys wouldn't have got, but he really did have to work harder because he was trying to live up to Dusty. With Jeff, he always came across, whether this is fair or not, as a guy who got a lot of breaks that maybe he didn't deserve as soon as he got them because of who his dad was. And those are the kind of guys that... They're just, over time, they're increasingly grady, for lack of a better term. But in 1990, he was a good, he was a, a, a really a good worker, actually. Like, a, a very underrated, actually. Mm-hmm. So, on October 8th, we have our 
We have a 21-man one-night tournament for the USWA Unified World Tw- Title. 21-man. I love that. Yep. You may ask yourself how that works. Well, they did 17 <laughs> matches in one night. If you're wondering how structurally that worked, well, Lawler got a bye from the first round, and Dick Murdoch randomly got a bye into the quarterfinals. So, again, why not? But, I mean, you look at the talent they had here. You had Lawler, Dundee, Mark Callis, just before becoming The Undertaker. You had Dick Slater, Danny Davis, Jeff Gaylord, Doug Gilbert, Terry Funk being brought in, Brickhouse Brown, Tony Anthony, Steve Kern was um, did a little run here, Dick Murdoch, the Samurai, not El Samurai, just I think he was Via Kong Express too, but um, uh, Gary Young, Austin Idol, King Cobra, John Tatum, Eddie Gilbert, Jimmy Valiant, Jeff Jarrett, and well, Sheik Hussein. So it's not all winners, but um, the, the show didn't sell out. But I think it was the best house it did in a while, and I think maybe one of the last really good ones they ever did. I'm not sure about that, but that seems right. Yeah, I it I'd have to look that up, and I'm too lazy to do that now. Plus, it would make for terrible audio. But the, but it definitely my memory of it is that it did very well, and you can see why it would because while there are certainly some less than outstanding people among that field, for the most part, that's actually a really good field, especially for 1990. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, that's... I, I mean, you're not going to do a whole lot better than that. No, and, I mean, this show is actually, you can get it from high spots, because this was broadcast on ESPN over a couple, like, several weeks, so, if you want it, it's out there. I have VHS tape, but not the whole thing, but a good chunk of it, and it's actually really a lot of fun. There's some really solid stuff on here, and uh, Eddie and uh, Jarrett did a really good 15-minute draw, and Eddie advanced because of a coin flip before losing to Austin Idol. Very long story short, the finals come down to Lawler and Idol. Idol promises to play it straight, and then he just... Flat out attacks Lawler. And Gilbert and Terry Funk try to interfere, but it backfires. Lawler wins the title in about three minutes. So that's where we end up after that. Yeah, kind of a horseshit ending to the tournament. Yeah. Um, that was probably, to me, the one thing out of all this that, you know, it was like, eh, was whatever. But, but having said that, I'm sure they wanted to have, like, a, a, uh, a big uh, triumphant moment for somebody. And uh, I can't remember if it was after this or or before or this, where Lawler cuts the promo about how, um, you know, <laughs> he got the promo where he's like, you know, we don't really wrestle for that long, so it's not a big deal <laughs> that we have to wrestle a bunch of one night. He's like, yeah, our matches are only like 15 yeah. minutes long, so no big deal, <laughs> which I thought was a hilarious way to, like, portray that, because normally it would be, oh, we had these grueling, and you hear these old-timers now, we went Broadway every night for seven consecutive years. Like, it's always some complete horseshit yeah. statement. And here's Lawler, like, on TV with Bill Dundee going, ah, that match went two minutes. And I got to call the other night, that was 12. This is not a big deal we wrestled twice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. That was also match 17 of the night. So, <laughs> <laughs> Probably better just go to the big finish. So, um, Eddie shifts into a feud with Jeff Jarrett over the Southern title. Again, that was the title Lawler held literally over 50 times. So. Jesus Christ. Uh, they cut promos on each other. Eddie makes comments about Jarrett's dad owning the promotion. Jarrett made mention of Eddie going through a divorce, which um, why he's acting all out of sorts. And Normally, should, I mean, this was a context. It never applied to anything like wrestling was fake, but it delved into real life and things people may have known and, you know, People knew Jeff Jarrett was the promoter's son. I mean, they probably didn't know about A's divorce, but, you know, that's 
something real and plausible I think people can at least relate to. So it works in that regard. Yeah, I, it, it uh, kind of reminded me of the, the angle they did in Portland years before Buddy Rose and Matt Bourne, um, you know, were the, they were uh, – uh, I think it was Buddy was married to Matt's sister. And, they, like, like it, it was very similar in that regard. Like, you, like they brought something real into the equation that was um, maybe – Maybe too real, but it added depth to it. Because the other thing I remember is these guys were local heroes and anti-heroes. And Memphis, while it was not a small city then and is much bigger now, it was a small enough world where people likely knew little tidbits and things about some of these guys. And there were rumors flying around on a local level about what these guys were doing out of the ring also. I can absolutely guarantee you. So, you know, I mean, like, the rumors are probably out there anyway. You kind of run with it. You know, it's, it's it, it makes for something different on Saturday mornings. Nothing else. Yep. So, uh, Jared ends up defending the Southern title against Eddie in a hair versus title match and, there was, of course, a ref bump. Sam Bass does a run in, gets the pile driver. But Eddie throws a fireball, toasts Jarrett, wins the belt. And uh, the next week on TV, all the heels come out the back. They have party hats, balloons, silly string. And Tojo Yamamoto reads a proclamation declaring Eddie the new king of Memphis. This was, Dave, I think this was Dave Brown's finest moment, reacting to the complete utter nonsense transpiring around. <laughs> and it is completely ridiculous. Like, if people aren't familiar with this, but they're, they are familiar with older periods of Memphis wrestling, this kind of had the feel of one of the Jimmy Hart first family promos during the period where there were 752,000 people in the first family because there's just an entire screen full of people and Eddie saunters in. It's like the, it, it, like the only thing that we'd seen up to this point, which we didn't mention that may have been almost as ridiculous as when Dirty White Girl beat Tessa in the blow-off to their feud, and they brought her, like, they carried her in, like, to this ridiculous oh, right, music. Yes. That was pretty great, too. But this is, uh, this is absolutely hilarious stuff. And uh, Tojo being trotted out <laughs> it was, it was awesome. Uh, like, Tojo Yalamoto is such a, such a great character, even at this point. You know, this, like, 5'2", uh, Asian man who's sort of randomly inserted into the heart of Tennessee wrestling at all these bizarre times. Yeah, I absolutely love him in this. Yeah, I think he had a state. He was managing Sheik Hussein and um, another Sheik and the Samurai. It's pretty much just the foreign heel stable. It's amazing called it that. So Yeah, and I mean, he had been a, a, a huge part of the, the USWA takeover in Texas a year prior. Oh, yeah. Huge, huge, huge there. Which led to my all-time greatest call in the history of wrestling, the uh, the, the very uh, religious uh, and, and conservative Mark Lawrence screaming, "This is the biggest abortion I've ever seen!" And then, <laughs> <laughs> it's just absolutely great stuff. <laughs> All right, so now we get Lola defending the title against Terry Funk on November fifth. Eddie tries a run, and Lola keeps fighting him off, but ultimately Funk hits Lola with the chain and wins the title. So, uh, also Doug and Tony Anthony had the tag titles. So, it's really the heels are dominating the territory right now. And I don't think Funk is around all that often. They make mention of him being in Japan. So, Eddie's title is the focus of the promotion basically for the next couple months. 
Yo, yeah, the Southern title is what is what the TV is pretty much completely revolving around at this point. They at one point, and I, I may be getting a little bit ahead. You can stop me if I am, Joe. But at one point, they do this segment where they count down the top, a huge deal out of the top ten because Eddie Gilbert is number one contender to Terry Funk because he's the Southern Championship holder. But it was just kind of funny because. Uh, Normally, the the big deal would be that you're the champion, but because the champion wasn't there, the big deal was that you were the secondary title holder, who was the number one contender to the title hold. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of odd unless you understand how Memphis works and unless you sort of watch the entirety of the, the stuff we watched. Yeah, they did the the top ten countdown, and I think I think I know Bam Bam Bigelow was on the list, which I thought was weird because we hadn't seen him, but he he did show up for at least one match. And then, wasn't Ricky Steamboat on the list too? Which was there were just some names that like Doctor Death was number four, I think. That's right. Steve, yeah, Steve Williams what? was number four. <laughs> I'm like, excuse me. Not even number ten. Like, not even like no. plugging him in at the end. Like, he's like up in the up in the upper tier of uh, guys. And I don't remember Doctor Death working in the USWA Memphis in 1990. I, I maybe he did, and I'm just blanking. But I certainly don't recall it. I don't think so. I, like, uh, yeah. There was a, not a fake Dr. Death. I know there was another one who was in the territory. I, I think that was later, though. Because like, um, I forget who it was, but there was a, someone else went by Dr. Death. So, I don't know. Maybe they meant him. But still, that was very, very odd to see. How, how great would it be if that's how they debuted Austin? They brought him in as Dr. Death, of knockoff Dr. Death, Steve <laughs> Williams. Oh, man. Oh, God, I wish that had happened. And Memphis absolutely would have done that. Oh, yeah. That's why it's so great. So now we find out someone has placed a $10,000 bounty on the king, 50000 if you ended his career. So we get some scrubs uh, keep attacking the king. Eddie Gilbert swears not, he's not behind the bounty. There was a hysterical TV match between Lawler and Sergeant O'Reilly where Lawler just kept giving him backdrops. I don't know what the deal was. But he gave him one, tried another, screwed it up, so he gave him two more. And then... Um, some more scrubs tried to attack him. Eddie denies being behind this, and then we come to find out someone placed a similar bounty on Eddie's head. I have no idea if someone else put the put both bounties on uh, Lawler and Gilbert, if Eddie was behind the whole thing, because in December, one week, we find out Eddie isn't there because he was afraid for his safety, and the next week, Eddie Marlin announces Eddie has left the territory, he's vacated his title, he has vowed to never return, he'll be back in four months, and uh, repeatedly over the years... I'm not sure what the problem was. I don't know if it was just Eddie being Eddie just wasn't happy about something or just decided it was time to go. I don't know, but that, it just ended just like that. Yeah, it's really weird because uh, they they send out – there's this promo, and, and Doug, I think, is the one who's like, oh, my brother, he, we, we we're terrified for his safety. We don't know what to do with him. Because anywhere, anytime he goes, people are jumping him from behind while he walks down the street. Which, by the way, the idea of that is absolutely hysterical. Like people like walking up to Eddie and Win Dixie and punching him <laughs> in the face. Like, but they, they, uh, you know, and and they cut that promo, and you're thinking, oh, okay, um, something's going to happen. You know, like like obviously this is building to something. And it, it might have even been later in that same show because I, I can't. It, it's some of the stuff is uh, some of the stuff on these YouTube videos we watch is the date pops up on the screen, but other stuff doesn't. 
It might, yeah. but it might have been later in the same show. But it certainly it, it was no longer than a week later where Eddie Marlin comes out and just sort of casually says, "Yep, Eddie's gone, and that's that." And it that's that. That's quite literally it. I mean, there's nothing now. To be fair, we don't know, um, or I don't know anyway, what happens on Memphis t- television as a follow-up to this. Knowing Memphis, I, assert, I almost would be shocked if they didn't turn that into some sort of angle with Doug and other people. But mm. I don't know what they did. Um, I don't know if there was any real follow-up to it, and I don't know where Eddie went or why he left. I mean, this was around – was this – the, the, the TWA series with Foley, was that 91? It was late 90 and went into 91, because I know one of their 91 matches placed third in the Pro Wrestling yes. Illustrated Match of the Year. Yes. So he was still up there doing some stuff, and he would be back, and then he was in Global, so. Yeah, that's so weird. And that, that is, it's just odd. But it, it's... It, it, actually, in a way, it's not odd because it's Eddie Gilbert. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just a weird way to blow this off because it's it uh, you get the slow evolution and he declares himself the king with all the pomp and circumstance thereof, and uh, you're uh, they're obviously building to a big showdown with, with uh, you know with Lawler and Gilbert, probably build to some sort of for the kingship match, I would expect, mm. you know what I mean? And then it never happens, you know? So um, in a way, in that sense, it's really disappointing. But as a whole, watching the totality of this, this was great stuff. I, I watched um, the first, it's 25 parts, as we alluded to earlier. I watched the first 17 parts very, uh, because Joe contacted me about doing this show, gosh, this was a month ago or so? Yeah, about a month ago. And, and I watched the first 17 parts, like, in two days. And I was, I like, it had been so long that I was like, you know what, screw it, I'm just going to watch it all again from the beginning. So over the last four days, I watched it all from the beginning again. And it was absolutely as great the second time around as it was the first time around. Uh, it just has a kind of an unfortunate anticlimactic non-ending. Yeah, it's totally worth. I mean, it's twenty-five parts. They're like ten, fifteen minutes each. You can, you know, put one on every now and then. If Ross getting boring, like, please put this stuff on. And it's very, it's just super entertaining. And you know, a lot of angles, interviews, and just you know, just <laughs> I wish I'd been there. That's all I can say. And it's it's completely different than anything you're going to see now. Even the good stuff that you see now is not like this. You know what I mean? Like yeah. like there's a lot of good wrestling out there. I'm not one of these guys who believes that wrestling has never been better than it is now. I'm also not one of these guys who thinks wrestling is uh, awful now. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that I really enjoy, but it's there's nothing like this going on in wrestling today. Nothing at all. There. There are promotions that smaller promotions that nobody outside of me and four other people watch that do that do things that are kind of at times in a similar vein, but they don't have the personalities that are as dynamic. They don't have a straight man as good as Dave Brown. They don't have the history that Memphis Wrestling has. There's just I don't think anything like this could even I don't think it ever could happen today. You know, I just don't think it's possible with the way the landscape is. This sort of thing is an impossibility, unfortunately, in 2015. So if you want to watch it, you're going to have to go to YouTube because you're not going to get it out of any promotion that currently exists. <laughs> nope. I, I kind of wonder, like, 
and he passed away in 95. So you kind of wonder, like, you know, would he have ended up somewhere during the Monday Night Wars in terms of booking or whatnot? And I could, you know, I mean, WCW brought in everybody, so I can't imagine, you know, they wouldn't want him on in his mind, and, you know, who knows what he would have done. Well, you know, I mean, it's possible... I, I, and people, uh, I've, you know, talked about this before with, um, with people who were pretty close to people who were, you know, inside uh, ECW. But I think Eddie would have ended up there eventually again. You know, and I know there was a lot of bad blood, and it was kind of like a hostile takeover, depending on who you believe, where Heyman sort of took his job out from under him, and they've been good friends beforehand. But that's exactly the sort of thing that Eddie would have run with as an angle. That exact reality is why I think Eddie Gilbert would have ended up in ECW again. Um, and, you know, I actually think, and this is something that, that you know, uh, American fans, unfortunately, don't pay a ton of attention to. You know, there was kind of a secondary boom that happened in Puerto Rico again uh, when the IWA started up and everything, uh, not long after Eddie passed. And I think it's possible that he would have been a big deal down there, which, to be honest, would not mean a whole lot to very many of us because Puerto Rico is such an underexplored place relative to, to most other, uh, you know, promotions. But there would have been spots for him. I don't know if he would end, I don't think there's any way he would end up in the WWF. WCW yeah. is a possibility. But I kind of always envision him going back to ECW. And had he lived, I think there's a chance he could have been one of the creative parties involved in TNA. And imagine a TNA book by Eddie Gilbert instead of Vince Russo. <laughs> Yeah, I'd watch yeah, it. Exactly. Well, that's our little, uh, this was fun. I, I thought about this, I'm like, oh, is this going to work? I don't know, but this was a lot of fun. I think um, hopefully we encourage some people to check this out. And uh want to thank you. I know um, there's going to be a big Eddie Gilbert show, Exile on on Bad Street, probably a couple. It's, actually, that's part of the reason I wanted to do this, because I know those shows <laughs> go forever, but I didn't think you'd spend as much time on this little run as probably it deserved. So I wanted to make sure we covered this in full. I'm sure everything else will be covered in maybe multiple parts, certainly many an hour. Yes, yes, yes. Eddie Gilbert is a a favorite of mine, a favorite of Chris Zellner's, a favorite of David Bixon's fans, a favorite of a lot of people. You know, he's like, he's kind of the, uh, the, the, the velvet underground of, uh, of wrestling personalities. You know, the, the whole thing with, um, Except in this case, it's not that we all went out and became wrestlers, as the talking point was with Velvet Underground, that everybody who listened to them went out and formed bands. It's that we all became wrestling geeks. Yeah. <laughs> I think Eddie, Eddie, Eddie had, uh, because Eddie was one of us. Eddie Gilbert was a wrestling geek. He, he was, he was, you know, Eddie Gilbert was, you know, the first guy to do a shoot interview. He was the, the first guy to sort of embrace the, burgeoning hardcore fan culture that that uh, gave rise to things like ECW and, and Internet fans, whatever that term mm. means in 2015. But, uh, you know, Eddie Gilbert was sort of the, the guy. So anytime I can talk about Eddie Gilbert at length, particularly when it comes to, like, delivery of angles, where I honestly think – I mean, let me ask you this, Joe, before we sign off here. Is there – other than Jake Roberts, who I think is an all-timer at that, is there anybody else you can think of who wasn't a main event player – like 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 in a major promotion anyway, who was better at delivering big time angles and getting them over than Eddie Gilbert? 
Boy, I can't think of any right now. I mean, Jake's the only guy who I yeah. think is on his level that wasn't like a, a Hall of Fame level obvious pick. Like, you know, to me, those guys were so good. Both Eddie and Jake were so good at making their angles feel like the most important things on shows, no matter where they were on the card. And um, that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, you know, it, I can't say enough about them. Everybody should go watch this stuff uh, because it's easy to find and successful. It's on it's on YouTube, and there's all sorts of good Eddie stuff that's on YouTube. So he's an easy guy to track down if you're interested in him. But also, we should mention that, like you said earlier, Tony Anthony he's awesome in this footage. I think uh, the dirty white girl is awesome in this footage. Mm. Uh, John Tatum is great. Uh, Lawler is great. You know, all these guys are really good. All right. So, what do you have coming up? Are we going to get that Chief Herders episode of Wrestling Culture? The Chief Herders episode of Wrestling Culture records tomorrow. Uh, the, the reason, tomorrow being Friday, uh, July the 3rd. The reason there has been a delay, I'll go ahead and announce it here, even though this, this probably, I don't know when this will be up exactly, but the reason there's been a little bit of delay with that is because we are finally completely abandoning TalkShoe and going uh, to SoundCloud uh, and uh, going all in with the PTBN, uh, PWO uh, network over at Place to Be Nation. So that, our first show, sort of our volume two, uh, 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 of wrestling culture, the, the the second season or whatever you want to call it, the first season was four years long. <laughs> we'll we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll start with that Sheepherder show, which is going to record tomorrow, barring some sort of absolute disaster. We've already set the time apart uh, aside. Dave's already written the bio. I've already done some rewatches of stuff, so that is absolutely coming. Um, I've got some other things I'm working on. Uh, expect a, I did an interview with Scott Hensley, who's the promoter for the Scenic City Invitational Tournament in Chattanooga that we mentioned at the top of the show, which is the first of its kind independent wrestling tournament. In, it features a lot of Southern talent, but not, ex, not exclusively Southern talent. It's got some bigger names, people like Moose, uh, Gunner, formerly of TNA, Congo Kong, who's like my favorite guy on the Indies practically. So it, it, along with a lot of a local talent and Southern talent like KT Hamill, Jimmy Rave, Joey Lynch, et cetera, et cetera. Um, please check out their Facebook page. Give it a like. Uh, names are getting released as uh, people like it. We've got 14 entrants available uh, that are known to the public already. Two more to come. And sort of as a follow-up to that, but not entirely along the same lines of that, I am doing an interview with, uh, I don't even want to say who it is, although it's a relatively unknown person, I think, um, but a Southern indie promoter uh, who, uh, our booker, who I think is really, really good at his job, that will also be appearing at VoicesOfWrestling.com in the coming days. And I think that's something that I might be doing going forward. I, I, every few weeks at uh, Voices of Wrestling, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be trying to do something on Southern independent wrestling because I think it is vastly undercovered despite the fact that there's a lot of promotions down there that do good business and do interesting things and, and aren't really talked about. So uh, that is something else I'm working on. New Trademarks will be recording probably next week, and you can follow me at Dylan Waco, that's D-Y-L-A-N-W-A-C-O, on the Twitter machine. That's a long-ass plug, so I'm done. <laughs> All right. Excellent uh, Twitter follow, by the way. I rec- And I don't follow anybody, but I follow Dylan, so... <laughs> There you go. I want to thank you. We will probably get you back. It's almost Hall of Fame season. Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame season, believe it or not. So we'll 
imagine we'll have you back on around that time for some more discussion. Will I get a vote this year? We'll have to see. You need one. It's outrageous that you don't have one, Joe. And I'm serious. I know. Well, I appreciate that. But uh, Dave Meltzer does follow me on Twitter. I believe accidentally, but still. So <laughs> see that carries. Hopefully, that gets a little clout. We'll see. Uh, I'll put in a word for you. Oh, I appreciate. I that. probably have no credibility with Dave, <laughs> but he. <laughs> That might hurt me in that. He, so. he, 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 he occasionally reports things I send him, so uh, he tolerates me at least to some extent, but uh, I'll put in a word. Well, there you go. All right, and then uh, we will be certainly returning to the 1996 WWF at some point. Probably, I know the Cubs fan, I believe, is heading back to Mexico, so we may want to catch up with him on his exploits. So a lot coming up in the uh, coming weeks and months ahead. So I thank you. I thank you, Dylan. Anything else before we sign it off? I gave the longest plug ever. I'm not shameless enough to keep going. Thank you for having me, Joe. <laughs> All right. No problem. Remember what uh, Jackie Fargo said. It's uh, nice to be important. What's more important to be nice.